Once upon a time, a special coffee brand was born, Enchant Coffee. They believe that a good brew should be part of every good story. Enchant Coffee is a gourmet, fairy tale themed coffee company that offers flavors like Mad Tea Party, Potion of the Sea Witch, The Sleeping Curse, and The Enchanted Bean. Each is a unique blend of 100% Arabica coffee. Sign up for the newsletter at EnchantCoffee.com to receive 10% off your first order. EnchantCoffee.com. Add some magic to your morning. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. The Russian folktale Snegorochka, or the Snow Maiden, is something of a curious one. There are various versions of the tale, type 703 in the Arne Thompson Index for those who like those things, in which a girl is made of snow and subsequently comes to life. It seems like an old story, but there don't seem to be any roots far back in Slavic traditions and it only appears in folklore in Russia in the 19th century. But the concept soon took hold after it did appear. There have been multiple treatments of the idea of the Snow Maiden since that time. In 1878, the Tsar's Imperial Ballet staged The Daughter of the Snows. Rimsky-Korsakov adapted the story as an opera. Two films came out of the Soviet Union in the 1950s and 60s, one animated and one live action. The latest iteration of the tale comes from the pen of award-winning children's author Sophie Anderson, and is called, simply, The Snow Girl. Long-time listeners to the podcast will remember that Sophie has been here before, talking about one of her previous books, The Girl Who Speaks Bear. All of Sophie's books draw on folk and fairy tales, due in no small part to the influence of her Prussian grandmother, who told Sophie stories when she was a girl. In The Snow Girl, which is beautifully illustrated by artist Melissa Castron, Tasha builds a snow girl with her grandpa, and above everything else, wishes that the snow girl could become real so that she could have her as a friend and not feel so alone. And then, after a meeting with the magical Aliana, something amazing happens. I spoke with Sophie recently about the story of the snow girl, along with her other folklore writing influences. So, welcome back to the Folklore Podcast, Sophie Anderson. It's lovely to have you back again. I think the last time we spoke was pre-plague. Yes, I think it was, wasn't it? I think it was for, it was for yeah. chicken legs, if I remember right, or maybe for bear. I don't. It was years ago. Wasn't it? it was. For, it was for bear. It was for bear. Uh, still yeah. a while ago. But, no, it's lovely to be back, yeah. uh, Mark. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, welcome, uh, and you are here um, to talk to us about your new book, obviously, uh, The Snow Girl, uh, but also about the folklore and the inspiration behind it, just as importantly, as far as uh, our listeners are concerned, because that's what will make them all go out and buy a copy of the book. So um, before we do that, though, 
We've probably covered this a little bit before, but it, as I say, it was some time ago. So for the, for those that haven't listened to the previous episode, just paint a little bit picture of, of your kind of path to this point. Tell us, how, how did you go from kind of young Sophie at school, full of hopes and dreams about the future, to this path to now Sophie and, and giving all sorts of other children hopes and dreams for the future through your writing? What got you here? Gosh, it was quite a winding path. At school, I loved science, actually. I grew up in Swansea by the seaside and I loved, um, well, I loved mermaids, actually, and sea monsters and and just uh, and marine biology. There was a bit of an overlap there between the mythical beasts and the real one. Um, but that's I, I wanted to go to university to study uh, marine biology, which is what I did. Um, although in the first year, um, we were asked to dissect creatures because this is like ages ago when they did these things. And I didn't like that. So I swapped to geology because I thought rocks won't complain if you, um, you know, break them open and <laughs> look inside. So I became a scientist. Well, I became a geologist. I worked as an exploration geologist for a while. Then I worked as a science teacher. And um, uh, and but yeah, what, what happened was when I was 30, I had children and um, this kind of changes everything, doesn't it? And I started, I had a little bit of time off teaching and I started to think about what I wanted to pass on to my children. And I think all of us start to think about stories then, don't we? About the stories that meant a lot to us growing up and we kind of want to pass those on to our children. And the stories that meant the most to me growing up were the stories my grandmother told me. She was um, a Prussian uh, lady, um, uh, which said that the, the place where she was actually born is now in Poland and where she went to school um, is now in Russia because, you know, all these borders changed um, after World War Two, and they still continue to change, don't they? Mm. But, um, but yeah, so my, my grandmother left um, Eastern Europe after the Second World War, came to Wales. And she left with nothing like lots of people did back then. But she had the stories from her past, from her culture and the music and the food and like the recipes. And, and that was what was really important to her. And she really um, made me love them as a child. It was I used to love going to her house in Pontypridd in South Wales. And it was like this little pocket of Eastern Europe in Pontypridd. And she would sit at her piano and tell me stories, Slavic fairy tales and folk tales in her own way. And she'd punctuate them with a bit of music a bit of Eastern European music and and I loved that and um, sadly she died when my eldest was um, less than one I think and I think this um, this really I kind of it, it kind of highlighted for me it was like I, I want to pass on those stories to my children you know when um, the first 10 years I was writing I wasn't published I was literally writing these stories in different ways for my children but I think, you know, if you write, I found a great love of writing and um, and eventually once you've produced lots of stuff, I think it's only natural to start to think, well, it might be nice to be published and spread these stories around a little bit further than my own family. So, um, yes. It's important, isn't it, as well, uh, to, to spread these stories. It's, it's not just um, to preserve the stories, but it's it's the mechanism by which we teach people all sorts of different things as well, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I think I, I said to you um, just before we started, I've been having lots of Zooms today, but I've talked a lot about this, about how um, fairy tales and folk stories are so important to impart that knowledge, the knowledge from our ancestors. I think, you know, I think it is 
vital knowledge about what it means to be human and it's been wrapped up in these imaginative little um easy to digest pockets of stories but within them is some really deep and and, and vital wisdom i think that it is important to pass on and also culturally like i i remember i grew up in south wales but i was hearing these stories from eastern europe and um i remember vividly the first time i actually saw one of those stories in a book it was in joan aiken um aiken's book uh, the Kingdom Under the Sea, and there's a Baba Yaga story in there. And it was, for me, it was just like, these stories that my grandmother told me, they're not just my grandmother's stories, they are part of a wider, you know, culture of stories. And and I, I felt it was wonderful. And I think, um, all I've written five books now, and all of them are inspired by Slavic fairy stories. And I always find it um, wonderful when people get in touch and they say, you know, these stories mean a lot to me from my family. Most, you know, there'll be British people. A, a, a guy from Wales got in touch the other day, but he's of Russian descent. And he was talking about how the stories meant so much to him. And it was so wonderful for him to see them in um, contemporary British literature. And, uh, so, and it reminded me about, you know, how much it meant to me to find those stories in a book, too. Yeah. Yeah. So so is it the case that you chose to work in this area, uh, sort of magical stories, fair, fairy stories or, or your interpretations of them purely because of your family background or because that was a mechanism that allowed you to to tell the stories that you wanted to tell? those stories meant the most I, I love all fairy stories and I remember um finding the fairy story section in my local library in Swansea and I loved reading stories from lots of different cultures but I think I had this deep connection to the stories from Eastern Europe because my grandmother told them to me and um when I started to write um it was it was always those stories that inspired me even in the books that you know my, my early books that weren't published it, it, it was polish fairy stories and russian fairy stories all the slavic ones because i think i just feel this connection to my personal heritage so they do feel quite personal to me i do love them anyway i think i'd love them if i wasn't from um if, if my heritage wasn't from that part of the world and i love all sorts of stories but there is something i think about um telling stories that mean a lot to you personally you know i think yeah so yes indeed so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i think i think having that connection you know to mm. a personal connection to it is it helps the story to develop as well doesn't it so mm-hmm. let's let, let's talk about the story that you've chosen to work with this time so your your mm-hmm. book is titled the snow girl um and it's it comes from a traditional Russian fairy tale, uh, Snigorochka, and I will probably have mangled the pronunciation a little more than I would oh, that's like. That's pretty good, but... I think. Okay, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll take that I as a win. I can do much better. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it as a win. Uh, the Snow Maiden, uh, if we want to translate it into our own language. Um, it's it's a, a, a relatively well-known fairy tale, I mm-hmm. would argue, in in many cases and of course it's provided interpretation for for other stories too so tell everybody a little bit about um your story of uh the snow girl how it comes out of this original fairy tale and and how your version kind of works with that material as far as you can without spoilers of course of course yeah so so in my book, so in the original, just for people who don't know, very briefly, there's an old couple who are childless and they want a child. So they mould a child out of snow and she comes to life. And then depending which version you um, read, I mean, eventually at the end of the story, she she does melt. Unfortunately, spring comes and she melts. Sometimes she jumps over a fire and she disappears into a, a puff of cloud. 
Um, there's um, a kind of later version, which was um, a, a, a play and then an opera, which is the one that a lot of people know. She's a slightly more grown up child when she, when she falls in love and um, that love makes her makes her icy heart melt and she, and she melts away. So, but there's always this element of she is um, a person made of snow that has come to life and at the end she kind of melts. So it represents these kind of seasonal cycles, I suppose, of snowfall and, and you know, and, and snow melt. And um, as you said, there's lots of different versions. One of the most popular in recent years, I think, is an adult version called The Snow Child by Ewen Ivy, which is set in Canada, an adult version, which is very beautiful. Um, and um, and I, I love that book. I love all the different versions I always have. And I, I wanted to write a middle grade um, one specifically because I couldn't find one, to be honest. Like I, I found lots of picture books. I found adult versions. And, and of course, there's the opera and the play. But I couldn't really find a kind of middle grade children's family version. Um, so that's what I set out to write. Um, it is middle grade, but I did set out. I wanted it to be a story that that readers of all ages could enjoy. My children are from five to um, nearly 18 now, and I wanted all of them to be able to enjoy it, and I wanted myself to enjoy it and grandparents to enjoy it. So it's very much, I, I was setting out to write a, a, a family story. Um, so in my version, instead of grandparents, um, I mean, instead of parents making um, the child, my main character is a young girl called Tasha, and she's moved to the far north, to her grandfather's farm, um, with her parents to help grandpa out because he's getting on a bit and um, she's very lonely at the start of the book because she's quite a shy and nervous um, character and she hasn't had the courage to reach out and make any friends in the valley yet so she makes the snow girl with her grandpa and she makes a wish that the snow girl will come to life and be her friend so that she feels less alone and of course, the snow girl does come to life and um, they have all these wonderful, wintry, magical adventures over the winter. Um, but uh, the winter starts to go on a bit longer than it should. And people in, in the valley and animals in the valley start to suffer. And Tasha starts to wonder if perhaps her friendship with the snow girl is making winter go on a bit longer than it should. So then she has to um, kind of... Uh, have some important decisions about whether she can do anything to bring spring and of course there's the awful thought that if she does bring spring what will happen to her new best friend who is made of winter so it's a story about um, friendship about reaching out about letting go it's about community as well um yeah and, and I just hope it's a really lovely wintry magical fairy tale for all the family to enjoy with it, it, it definitely is um as with all of your books i demolished it fairly quickly um because your writing style i find particularly engaging and you you just want to to stick with it because um i, I think you're a natural storyteller in in that way um and it, it keeps you engaged it, it's it's really good and, and i think it it has such a beautiful denouement as well. This, as as all fairy tales should, of course, there has to be a a happily ever after. Um, mm. And I'm not going to go too much into the detail for obvious reasons, other than you know it is a, a typical fairy tale in that sense. But I think it paints a beautiful picture of how you know everybody can can come out of uh, events in a positive way. Um, and and I think I, I spoke at the beginning when I, I, I flippantly, admittedly, a little bit when I said talking about your you know your hopes and dreams at school and the, the ones that you give to other people. But that kind of that's all bundled mm. up in this story, isn't it? In, in that way, absolutely. Yeah.
Yes, it is. Like all fairy stories, it, it, it's about big things that affect us all. And it doesn't shy away from the fact that sometimes, you know, they're scary or upsetting or sad, but it has that the kind of hopeful feeling of like, we all go through the same thing so we can support each other through these things. So even if something sad happens or bad happens or scary happens, we, you know, we, we can all understand this. We're all humans and we can all support each other. And I think that's what's wonderful about fairy stories is it helps us to talk about and deal with these big themes, doesn't it? But and in a comforting way, in the same way that a mother or a grandmother or a great, great grandmother or a great, great, great grandfather would, you know, hold us through these things and tell us that it can be all right, you know, that we can do this, we can get through these things. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's one of the things that folklore is so good at is, is mm. you know, this teaching mechanism that allows you to, to use stories in order to teach those lessons and to say look you know this is this is how things can be and this is how things have been for other people yeah. it's such a lovely medium to teach those mm. lessons because it becomes not didactic you know because and uh, obviously all these stories are so layered we all get different things out of them don't we so I like to think because a couple of people have asked today you know what's the message that you're getting across and I always say well I just want readers to find their own message I've threaded lots of ideas and things in there and it's up to the reader for them to pull out what is important to them yeah you know I, I do very much like that idea which is what folklore like i say is all about people finding their own meaning from the from the old tales yes exactly and, and i i obviously tend to have a focus more on the the folklore and the inspiration behind the story than than those kind of literary angles of so why did you mm. write that sentence in that because Indeed, yes. that's that's not what we're about now of course because it's one of your stories um there does have to be uh, a good amount of animal involvement here as well. We, we've spoken yes, about like uh, spoken <laughs> about animals as characters before when when we talked about uh, the girl who spoke bear. But um, in this case, I wanted to ask you about your character of the fox. Now, the fox mm. plays quite an important role in your version of this story. Yeah. When we look at the fox more broadly in terms of folklore, the fox is normally a trickster character mm. in many cultures and in many ways. Your fox is, is somewhat different to that. Was was there a reason that you chose to use that animal in the way that you used it? Um, it very much a nod to Arthur Ransom, I suppose, actually, because in the... Um... In the earliest versions that I found, there, there, there was no fox. But in Arthur Ransom's um, version, he wrote a version of the Snow Maiden in um, his 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 book. What's it called? My it, old, old Peter's Russian Tales. There's a version in that, and there's a fox in it. And um, like you say, he's not a trickster in that, that version by Arthur Ransom. That the snow girl gets lost in the woods, and um, she uh, wants to find her way home. And three animals come and offer her to help her get home. I think it's a bear, a wolf and a fox. And she says no to the bear because, you know, you might eat me. She says no to the fox because you might eat me. I mean, uh, no to the wolf. And then she says yes to the fox and the fox actually leads her home. So the fox is very much the helper in that version. And um, and I know the fox featured in Ewan Ivy's version as well. And so I kind of link the fox to the snow maiden. So it's very much a nod to those two. And I did actually find... Um, I kind of, it really bothered me where that fox came from in Arthur Ranson's version. So I trawled through um, the original um, stories. Um, I, I, I had a friend help me translate some and eventually found another version 
um, of uh, the Snow Maiden in um, Alexander Afanasyev's Russian fairy tales, which has that section. And um, it's called the Snow Maiden and the Fox, but it, it kind of doesn't have the bit of the story where the Snow Maiden's made, but it has that bit with the three animals. So I, I was I was delighted when I found it because I was like, oh, I see now Arthur Ransom took these two versions and he mushed them together. And that's where that came from. But um, So I've gone off topic a little bit now. But yes, but basically I, I put the fox in because it was very much a nod to kind of Arthur Ransom's version of the story. Um, I really liked the idea of the Snow Maiden having... Um, an, an animal companion, as you say, I do like animal companions, and um, uh, because it, it was it was because of Arthur Ransom's version that I chose a fox. Basically, it's a nice, colourful animal to have next to the the um, icy white of the snow girl as well. I think. Yes. Um, yes. You absolutely. Know, yeah, as well. Do you enjoy yeah. Do you enjoy being able to um, develop a story through characters that are not human? So whether it's in an actual kind of anthropomorphic animal way or, or some other twist on us as a species, is, does that allow you to take things just a little bit further, perhaps, than you would otherwise be able to? Yeah, definitely. I do, like, because I think, you know, fairy tales and folklore are so rooted in nature, aren't they? Yeah. And um, so it, it feels right to have animal characters in there. And there's such fun to write as well. I find they're, they're nicely challenging to write because they don't speak. Well, in my books, they don't speak. They're not anthropomorphic sorry anthropomorphized to that point that they speak yeah but um so i have to find ways for them to communicate just using gestures and things which which is quite lovely so they're lovely characters to write and um everyone loves an animal character you know to to pop into your books yeah i mean first it's like lassie isn't it for those of us of a certain age yes, you know or skippy the bush kangaroo you know you've got to follow That's them it. because they want to tell you something and then yeah yeah they're so lovely that you know and i think children in particular just like uh, i think well, well we all do i think we all love a nice animal character because tasha yes. has a there's a little goat that's her favourite and the snow girl has her fox and there's lots of wild animals that they like to go and uh, look at. So, but yes, it's lovely to pop all that in the book for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you, you spoke about um, your background and your family background and obviously why that is an inspiration for you. But, but do you think the stories that come out of this area, so, you know, Russian folklore, Slavic folklore, are they particularly good as a source material for for stories for the reinterpretation of stories um or is it just the case do you think that you know every culture has these stories of their own culture and they're all equally good in terms of inspiration but it's how you develop them yourself as a writer mm, it's a little bit of both you know because i think i think all stories definitely have that potential for for inspiring and to be reinvented and I definitely feel that personal connection which is why I'm drawn to them but I do think as well that um a lot of the Slavic tales the versions that you find um available in books and on the internet tend to be slightly less messed with um than like perhaps the sort of western European stories that are not to um, insult the Brothers Grimm but they did um change a lot of the original stories quite a lot and their versions kind of became the go-to version so it can be quite difficult now to look further back and find older versions um whereas i think with the slavic folklore it can be a little bit easier to get a kind of sense of um some of the more ancient versions and they're kind of it is difficult um to kind of get their uh, links back to kind of like um you know uh, the the 
I, well, I see them all as being linked to pagan Slavic beliefs, and it can be sometimes difficult to find those links. But it is, I think it's slightly easier, possibly just because I spent more time doing it, than it would be to do it with the sort of um, Western European grim ones, you know, because there's still quite, there's quite a lot, not loads, but there's a fair amount known about pagan Slavic beliefs. And you can kind of, like, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I feel echoes of like Marana, who's the Slavic goddess of winter in in, in the snow girl, who was um, a, a, a goddess of winter whose death would allow for the rebirth of spring. And, and to me, that's very much the, the, the snow maiden, you know, so I can kind of see these links. And I very much like that about them. I like to be able to choose a fairy story. And before I use it, I, I research it so much. I research all the versions and I try to get as far back as I can to see if I can see where it came from. And with a lot of the stories in Eastern Europe, you can reach all the way back to, you know, sort of ancient pagan god uh, goddesses, which, which I find just wonderful. I love that about them. There's a lot of characters in in Slavic Eastern European folklore as well that are, that are that they're not the most pleasant of characters. Sometimes mm. there, there, there's a lot of um, you know more malicious characters in that folklore, but you can still work with them to your advantage as well, can't you? It, it's not naturally the case that because folklore depicts a character as being evil or bad or malicious that mm -hmm. that's everything there is about them and I'm, I'm thinking about you know house of chicken eggs for example the baba yaga story you know in many cases and in many ways when you look at the the law behind baba yaga you know she's a truly unpleasant character but she it doesn't is. have to be that way does it no she's wonderfully ambiguous this is you know like we might have talked about this before but um I do. I absolutely look. I, I I love her for that because she's she's awful. She's cannibalistic and um and terrible, and she threatens to eat people and and sometimes does eat people. But she can also be benevolent, and in lots of the stories, even though she's this you know kind of hideous, scary witch, she does end up giving the heroes or heroines something. She tests them and then gives them something that they need if they're worthy of it. So. I think that's wonderful. And I do also, I'm, I just said about, you know, the, the Eastern European stories not being messed with so much, but there is, particularly with Baba Yaga, I think that element of um, uh, when the Christian patriarchy kind of got into power over there, then they definitely, I think, made Baba Yaga a lot more evil than perhaps she originally was because they were trying to put um, people off their pagan gods and goddesses, obviously. So I always kind of like when there's a character that's depicted particularly terribly over there, I do kind of um, remind myself that perhaps that's, you know, uh, a, 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 a Christian retelling and they're trying to put people off, you know, those stories. But, you know, even with that element of the stories being changed, I think it still comes through that these characters are very rich and layered and, um and, and and yes, ambiguous. You know, they can be interpreted in lots of different ways, and I think that's that's something that's really wonderful when you want to reimagine a character. Obviously, you know, oh, yeah. even in the house with chicken legs, I made Baba really quite kind, but nobody said, "Oh, Baba's not kind," because most people who know Baba Yaga know that she can be kind, even if I didn't, you know, portray the cannibalistic bits. They they're kind <laughs> of aware that Baba can be quite a benevolent um, character. So you know, it still works no matter what you do with them, which is great. Yeah, and cannibalism does tend to fall away in a, in a middle grade book as a rule. It's, mm. it's not usually a big yeah. thing. <laughs> I think people, yeah, people kind of accept that. It's like, oh, fair enough. We're not going to be cannibals in middle grade. That's not so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now you haven't only um, written written for this culture or interpreted uh, the stories of this culture because 
you wrote for the Mab, for example, the uh, reimagining yes. of the Mabinogion, which um, we've covered on the podcast before. Um, okay. Now, how do you use folklore generally in fiction writing, both for children and adults, as as source material? Because yeah, you know, we've spoken a lot about about interpreting the the Russian fairy tales and that particular culture, but but thinking more broadly. You know, are there particular things that you look to do with this sort of source material or that other people should look to do with it? Um, well, I think, well, a little while ago I said about research. I think it's really important if you want to work with it is to start just by reading everything you can, you know, about a subject, you know, not only because it provides inspiration, but because you also... Well, I, I do want to remain true to the source material, even if I'm going to change things, you know, I do want to, I like to have some justification for the things that I choose. So I always, I have lots of books, I do lots of research, I read every version that I can, I'll read um, the very clever folklorists who write long things that about the interpretations and what various things might mean and the histories of the stories and I'll read it all and I'll let all that sink in and then let us, I think, stories kind of naturally arise from that if you familiarize yourself with everything around a story then um quite naturally your, your brain will kind of you know sift through it all and the things that mean the most to you will come to the front and a story will start to form like you like you mentioned the map and um it's actually the first time I'd written a story that wasn't based on eastern european and I did know the map from when I was a child growing up in wales but I wasn't as familiar with it so I read all the different versions I could of the Mabinogio and I read modern versions that were written in verse. I read lots of people's thoughts about the history and the meaning of those stories. And slowly, like my idea of Branwyn emerged. Again, I sort of like researched way back to um, some people had ideas that Branwyn, the character in the story I wrote for the Mab, um, used to be a goddess again. And so I sort of researched that aspect and what her powers might have been. And just the more you research, I think naturally something comes from that. And, you know, and it means that what comes from it is rooted in in the past and in st- stuff that is already there. So, and that is a, a reimagining. It's not, you're not just making up, I'm not just taking this character and making them what I want them to be. I am portraying what is the most important parts of that character that is rooted in, you know, in the past. And I think that's what makes them sort of authentic and true to to the past, you know, mm. I think, you know, but yes, hope, hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about translations as well. Now, your books um, notably have tra- been translated into a number of different languages. and, and yes, over 25 you, now. I yeah, think. yeah. And yeah. you have often on uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter posted mm images of your book covers from all the different yep. translations um which which are always equally as beautiful as the, as the original oh, but have these definitely. kinds of um you know slight adaptations based on the country that they're going into mm. and i wondered whether you thought that folklore themed fiction so fiction that takes its inspiration from from folkloric tales from folk tales from fairy tales do you think those books travel particularly well um and at the same time when they are translated when they're translated and adapted into other cultures literary canons is there a a sense that perhaps they take on a little bit of that culture in the translation or do you think that they tend to be fairly faithful that's a really interesting question actually i think um 
I think a little bit of both again. I've been really interested. Like I say, they've been translated into over 25 languages and most of the translators haven't um, communicated with me, but um, a few of them do. And um, particularly um, places like Korea and China and Japan, the translators from those countries have got in touch to query and to question um, various aspects. And partly because the language can be quite different. Um, so they're seeking the right word, whereas we might have one word in English, they have like four words for it. And so they're seeking the right word. But sometimes, like you say, it is about them trying to um, tweak the story so that it fits the culture so that people can relate to it a little bit better. And I've had some interesting conversations with the translators saying, right, well, this scene is about this is what it's about. So can you think of a way of doing that same thing? but that your readers will relate to a little bit more and then we'll come up with something together. And I think I, I've, I've really enjoyed that, you know, that kind of um, collaborative working to make sure that I, I think a straight translation can work. But I think if you have a translator that's making sure that um, that the essence of the story is going to be understood by a different culture, if there is a bit of a, you know, divide that would um, make it more difficult for a different culture to understand. Um, I think that's wonderful when that has happened. Mm. And I suppose, um, needing those conversations is all about how different is your culture and how different are the points of reference you know that different cultures use um so that has been really interesting actually um but generally i would say that folklore is something that can travel i love reading you know folklore and folklore inspired books from all around the world and um and i think that we can all get something out of them even you know even though you might read them and think gosh these are quite different culturally to the stories that i know and recognize it it can be actually really refreshing and invigorating and intellectually stimulating to read something that is so different from you know the familiar stories that that that, that we know and other languages are not the only place that your stories have gone because you have now adapted for the stage as well um for chicken legs um what was that process like absolutely wonderful so there's a company called Leon Font Terrible who the theatre company who um got in touch with my agent and said they wanted to adapt it and um I can't really claim any um glory for the adaptation they did a wonderful job but early on they kind of asked you know how much you want to be involved and but everything they shared with me was just so wonderful it was just like I'm just gonna let you do it it just felt right and they are the experts in theatre and I am not obviously so um what they've done is just absolutely incredible they had an amazing man called um Samuel Wide at the puppets who does a lot of fantastic puppets for theatre um Alexander Wolf created a musical score that is absolutely beautiful and inspired by Eastern European music again but with the um lots of other influences coming in and Oliver Lansley who wrote the script um kept it really really true to the book but also made it its own thing you know because obviously it needed to fit onto the stage so um he sort of condensed it and distilled it and um, added a bit more humor I think than is in the book because that obviously translates really well on stage and they've created something absolutely magical I'm so very proud of them and so very honored you know um, yeah, and even if you weren't directly involved with that adaptation, did you then have the opportunity or did you need to have the opportunity to go and look at it uh, in a kind of finished or semi-finished form and go, yes, that's good, go with that, or actually <laughs> I don't think that you should treat it in, the, in that way, or I did you just go do yeah. it? I, I kind of I had the opportunity to at every stage, but I did just say do it. But I think at the point I said do it, it was after I had seen 
a great deal of what they'd done. They, they were very open with, they sent me pictures of the sets, pictures of the puppets. They sent me the musical score with just Alexander singing it rather than a full cast, obviously. Um, they sent me um, set designs and set plans. Um, uh, they offered to send the script, actually. But I, I think by that point, I said, no, I just, I trust you because I'd had so many conversations with them. I talked to Oliver about... Um, what his aims and hopes and dreams were, but what he felt about the book, what he felt the message was. And, you know, when you just click with people and you just think, I I just trust them, so I'm just going to let them run with it. And um, by the time I was offered to read the script, it was just like, you know what, I just actually want to watch it because I know it's going to be wonderful because I trust you so much. So sure enough, on opening night, when it was at Manchester first, um, last year or the year before, and and I watched it on opening night with with my agent and a few other people, and, and it was wonderful. And I just, I, I, I knew it would be. <laughs> so, so I did have, have complete faith. But like I said, I did, they had shared a great deal up to that point. So, yeah, but everything had just been so fine. It was like, yeah, you do that. <laughs> I didn't want to stand in their way at all. <laughs> I know what it's like, you know, as a creative, you know, you sometimes you don't, you just need to get your own creative stuff out, don't mm. you? Sometimes, sometimes it's useful. Obviously, you know, towards the end, editors are wonderful, but in that first draft stage, you just want to be left to, you know, run with your own ideas yes. without someone questioning them, I think, really. So Yeah, absolutely. And and if you're the sort of person who isn't too precious about letting go of control of, of something yeah. that you've created, then absolutely. I think probably you'll enjoy the end result more for that as well. I think if you've been involved at every step of the process and then gone mm. to opening night, there'd have been no surprises. There'd have been little magic to exactly. it perhaps. Yeah. yeah it was lovely to have all those surprises I mean, possibly it helps that my books are inspired by folklore because I think that means that I'm not so precious about them because you know I would say they're not quite often people who don't know the house of chicken legs and Baba Yaga say oh how did you come up with that idea and it's like well it's not my idea they're very old stories Baba Yaga is a lot older than me the house of chicken legs is someone else's idea so I, I, I it would feel wrong for me to feel precious about these things that are thousands of years old and they belong to all of us really so um, yeah, so I think possibly that helps as well. Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's one of the the great things about folklore as as a discipline. And I hesitate to use the word discipline because um, there's far more to folklore than just the academic study of it. Mm, but but for those people who work with folklore, however they work with it, on the whole, they tend to not be precious about mm. their material, their personal material in quite the same way as a lot of other subject areas do. And I don't That's know whether... True. Yeah, I don't know what the reason is for that. I've never kind of quite pinned it down, whether it's because it's all part of our shared past. Heritage, yeah. Yeah, um, I don't know what it is, but it, I, I think that gen generally tends to be the case with, with this subject matter. Yeah. Mm. It's like you said at the start about, you know, the importance of passing on the stories. I think, Pat, if you're interested in folklore, I think all of us feel that, you know that it is important to pass on these stories. So that goes against being precious with them in a way, doesn't it? We, we, yeah. we do want everyone to read them. We want everyone to read the other versions. You know, we want everyone to know how wonderful it is and and can be. So, yeah, perhaps that is part of it. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. I have, um, in the past, on a number of occasions, bemoaned the kind of... Um, children's book market for folklore materials because mm. it has traditionally not been that great 
I think there, there have been very few books up until relatively recently, perhaps, mm-hmm. that worked with folklore as inspiration, as material, um, as much as perhaps they should. Mm. Um, and I think over recent years, that's changed a great deal. And, and now there are brilliant books and brilliant authors doing the kind of thing that you're doing and working with non-fiction material. Like um, we had Claire Cox Darkey on recently, who's produced some beautiful children's non-fiction folklore titles and a number of other people as well. Um, do you think it's improved? Do you think that, that there was a kind of... Um, gap in the market almost for this sort of thing where children would were, were just not able to enjoy this material uh in the way that they can now and and that yeah. actually we're now seeing a much better position i think so definitely i think the, like you say in recent years we've seen so many wonderful books come out that are mm. much more relevant and exciting to young people today there seemed to be like this long period like from when i was a child right up until like you say maybe five or six years ago where the only fairy tale books were just the same old same old collections of fairy stories um from all over the world kind of jumbled up together and they were all quite short and um not wanting to insult them quite a lot of them were quite blandly written and it was you know just lots and lots of stories shoved into a book of fairy stories and you know and um I, I loved a lot of them, but I think that there was definitely a gap for something new and exciting and, you know, that appeals to readers today. And like, particularly for the like middle grade and, and, and young adult readers, you know, because there's quite a difference between reading a book of short fairy stories and reading a whole novel that is inspired by a fairy story. You get, you know, so much, um, they become so much richer and deeper and so much more layered. And in and, and recent years, I think there have been some really fantastic reimaginings and retellings, really exciting ones, you know. That are, that are subversive and just like everything that um, that is brilliant about fairy tales and folklore. Um, yeah, so it is, it is very exciting, but there's definitely room for more still. Oh, I yeah. Think. Yeah, yeah, yeah there, there really is. Yeah, absolutely. but judging by judging by the people who contact me and my my to be read and reviewed pile, um, there's there's lots more, you know, oh. on the way fairly soon too. That's good. I think there, yeah, it is. It's um, because sometimes I'm still like, you know, I, I sort of thirst for these books. I'm like, gosh, I'd really love, you know, um, this particular fairy story to be reimagined in middle grade or YA or, you know. Mm. And when I find one that sounds exciting, I, I saw one today. I think it was called, it might be called Grimm's Forest or something like that. But it, it's quite, it's grim inspired, but it sounds very different again, you know. And I love how they, you know, all these things, they, they, they're familiar yet when, they're also new and exciting as well. <laughs> yes. That's what's wonderful about them, you know. Yeah. It can be comforting and familiar, yet also feel like, oh, I've discovered something really new and exciting. And, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. So you've you've done uh, quite a few Russian-inspired stories now, um, but there's plenty yeah. more out there still to be done, let's be there honest. Is, you yeah. know, it's a, it's a rich field that that you can um explore and other things so so what's next for you definitely my eldest actually said to me the other day she said are you going to get bored of doing you know eastern european ones what will you do next and i said <laughs> well, no, i don't think i don't think i'll get bored there's plenty 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 mm. um i'm halfway through writing one now that obviously i'm not allowed to talk about because no, no. publishing keeps everything a secret but there is um it's actually got a familiar character in it um from one of my other books so it's the first time I've, i it's the first time that because all my books stand alone they're all kind of linked in a way 
but they all stand alone. But the one I'm working on now is perhaps more linked to another one of my books than any of the others has been, which is quite exciting. But um, I'll talk about what I might do after it because I can talk more openly about that. Actually, what I, I was writing a reimagining of the Firebird. I started, um, I finished The Snow Girl and I thought, oh, I'll do The Firebird because it's fiery instead of snowy. It's a nice opposite. And I plotted it all out. I read everything I could read about the Firebird, plotted it all out. And then my um, editor got in touch with this other idea that I'm working on now. She said, oh, have you ever thought about doing this? <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I haven't. But now you mention it, that sounds pretty cool. So, so the fiber kind of got shelved. So I, I, I keep wondering if I go back to that. I do also. I would love to write an adult book one day, and I've been saying this for the last three books. I keep saying maybe the next one will be adult, and uh, I don't know if it will be. But um, uh, after after the one I'm writing now, I'll be out of contract, and I do wonder if I might um, write an adult one. Um, possibly something Baba Yagarish in a you know for grown ups, which does mm. appeal to me, but um, but I don't know. But I, I think I'll definitely stay with Eastern Europe for sure. And um, even if I try an adult one, I think I'll I'll I'll, I'll still keep my hand in children's fiction because it's definitely my my sweet spot as well. I do like writing for that age. Yeah, and it has done you good service. And you know the the awards and recognition and other things that your books have re- received show exactly why you should still continue writing children's. I've been very well. lucky with all of that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I don't think it's luck, hard. Sophie. I think your writing has quite a lot to do with it. To be honest, you know. Oh, thank you. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk about this one. Whatever you choose to write next. Uh, after you're out of contract whether it be children or adult um, I'm sure it'll be amazing and I shall look forward to the opportunity to chat about it with you in the future again so thank thank you you so much much. that would be lovely indeed thank you Mark it's been lovely to talk to you thanks The Snow Girl is published by Usborne and can be found in various formats wherever books are sold we'll close in a moment with an extract from the audiobook version first If you missed our announcements on social media and the podcast feed, then be aware that our new storytelling podcast, Stories from the Hearth, is now live on all podcast platforms. Each week, an old folk or fairy tale, sometimes classic but often obscure, is read for you in a book at bedtime style by one of our own folklore podcast listeners. You can find Stories from the Hearth on your podcast app, Just search for Stories from the Hearth, a folklore podcast production. We hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to rate and tell your friends if you do. My thanks to producer Tracy Nicholas for taking the helm of this show. If you'd like to read for us, then please email folklorepodreaders at gmail.com and we can give you more information. Don't forget that you can help us to keep making the content that we do by joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Tiers start at just a pound a month, and everyone there gets extra content. You'll also find a donation button on our website. I'll be back with a new episode very soon. In the meantime, we end today with an extract from Sophie Anderson's book, The Snow Girl. Tasha was untangling a baby goat from a bramble patch when the snow began to fall. The flakes were tiny at first, drifting through the cold, still air like flecks of dust. Unsure if it really was snow, Tasha placed the baby goat, who was called Ferdinand, 
down on a patch of grass. She slipped off one of her warm mittens, which were embroidered with woodland animals round the cuffs. Then she held out her hand. Glittering crystals landed on her skin, so softly she barely felt them, then disappeared instantly, as if soaking into her. It's snowing, Tasha whispered, delight bubbling up inside her. Tasha had always dreamed of seeing snow. It's snowing, she shouted louder, turning to the small stone farmhouse the other side of the goat paddock. The living room curtains were half drawn. Smoke curled sleepily from the chimney. Tasha put her hand over her mouth. She shouldn't have shouted. Grandpa was most likely dozing in front of the fire, and he needed his rest. And Mama and Papa would be busy, chopping wood or cutting hay or packing turnips into straw. Tasha and her parents had moved to Grandpa's farm three months ago, because he was struggling to manage it alone, and there were a thousand jobs to do to get it ready for winter, so shouting that it was snowing would not be helpful. Tasha turned away from the farmhouse, and looked at the view all around. The mountains that cradled the patchwork valley were veiled by a cloud of falling snow, and the scattered handful of farmhouses that nestled among the fields were twinkling in the soft new light. Grandpa's valley was always quiet, but a deeper hush fell as the flakes grew larger. Within moments, they were as big as the letters in Mama's old nature books that Tasha read by lamplight in the long, dark nights.